You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 163 and the first episode of 2019. What is up, Mark? What is up, Jake, is we got a new exciting sponsor. We uh, welcome IBM uh, to the show. They're a new sponsor for 2019 and for probably a very long time after that. So we're super excited to have a company of that size and of that making that big of an impact in the oil and gas industry come and work with us and part with us. So welcome IBM as our new sponsor. We're, we're going to definitely make you proud. Other than that, Jake, this, this, this almost should be two shows. We've got so many questions this month. Yeah, we sure did. You know, we are finally back after the holidays. You know, uh, oil and gas is kind of slow to get started after the holidays. So locked down things with IBM. Super excited to have them on board. We have a ton of questions. Do you want to go through any reviews really quickly before we hop into the Yeah, let's, the let's do this. So we got two, the first one is a Too Bullish by a Spinkener. All you guys do is tout production production. They had to say it twice. What about frackers restoring the value of WTI going to cause layoffs? So, Speakner, Jake and I really carry a lot of influence in this industry, we believe, but not quite enough to influence production <laughs> and oil prices. The commodity side of our industry has always been here, will always be here, will always be here in the future. Their supply and demand controls also things like geopolitics. Do I think that the increase in production is going to have caused people to lose some jobs? Yeah. Do I think that any one person can control it? No. Do I think the market controls it more or less? Yeah. So, you know, but this low crude price environment, also there's some benefits, Spinkner. It forces innovation. It forces efficiencies. And what I think is going to happen is as we move further and further down time, these efficiencies and these in innovations that we're going to adopt is going to moderate the peaks and valleys of hiring people and laying people off. So in some ways, you'd almost look at a low crude price environment making the upstream side of our industry become more efficient and run their businesses better, which is not a bad thing. You want to chime in there, Jake, before I hit the next one? I, I think I agree where he's coming from. You know, I think, I think domestically, I think we have more control over the WTI than we kind of let off. And I think we are potentially drilling the, the price of oil into the ground. But this is, my, this is a, a small part of a much bigger conversation that kind of extends beyond talking about show reviews. <laughs> I think maybe we could have an entire piece on this. It would make a good panel discussion, right? Get some of our audience to jump it on. It would. On, and on I've, actually talked to, I've actually talked to a few people about putting something on uh, talking about this, but I, I think I'll give you the short answer. And I think uh, I, do, I do agree. And I think we're playing a much bigger part in that than we like to admit to. And, you know, we are paying the price, you know, Colin and I, especially, you know, being operators, we don't really like... $40 oil, $45 oil. We'd much rather be at 60 or 70. And I don't think we need to be bringing as many rigs online as, as we have, but that's kind of the short answer. Do we have any more? Yeah, one more by Tulsa Raindoll. Gotta love that. Hey guys, love the show. Y'all do a great job striking a balance between getting into the weeds and providing a 30,000 foot view of complex issues. Like many of your listeners, I sure subscribe to more industry newsletters than I could ever read. Listening to your podcast clues me in on what is moving the needle in the industry with just the right amount of commentary to understand an issue's relevance to me, my organization, and my career. I hope my Houston travels aligns with one of your events. Perhaps you can add Tulsa to your list of stops in 2019. Thanks for all you do and keep up the good work. Well, Tulsa Raindoll, you got your wish. 
Tulsa is on our list of stops. We will be doing a happy hour in 2019. Once we get it launched, it will happen every month. In fact, Tulsa Rangdahl, we're looking for somebody to, to head that up. So if you're interested in being the point person, it would also probably help your company or career a little bit to have that connection with the the uh, Tulsa Oil and Gas Happy Hour. Reach out to me. Let me know. We're looking for somebody out there. And, and any of our audience out there, if you if you want to uh, step up and run our happy hour out there with our full support and help, just let me know. But uh, anyway, Tulsa Rangdahl, thanks. If you want to support the show, the best thing you do is what Tulsa Rangdahl did and what uh, uh, Spinkner did is just leave a review. It takes a couple minutes, and it's the best way to support the show. And now this is First Friday Q&A where we try to answer your questions. Jake, what's the first question? First question is from Sam. He's a retired landman. Uh, he writes, Torchlight Energy was awarded a new field discovery designation from the USGS for the Oro Grande Basin in West Texas. They have about 100,000 acres out there and have both oil and gas to the surface. Sounds like they are negotiating with several of the majors. Has there been anything comparable done in recent history? Their geologist is the same geologist that discovered the Wolfbone play and has described this as a billion barrel find. What could this be compared to in terms of modern discoveries? So a billion barrel find sounds enormous, right? Honestly, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that enormous. You have a huge, in the last decade, we've had huge uh, discoveries, bigger than that in Cyprus and Oman and Norway, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, when you're talking about really big discoveries, you're talking about multi-billion you know, barrels of, of oil and then our barrels of barrels are equivalent, right? So the, in, in, in Kazakhstan back in 2000, they, I think they found about 40 billion barrels of oil. <laughs> that's, that's a big find. In Iran, they made another one. It's about 35 billion. The uh, Campos uh, area in Brazil, as everybody knows, has over 125 billion barrels and it just goes on and on. So a billion barrel sounds like a lot. It's not. Now this geologist that, that he's actually talking about, what is his name? Uh, I know who he is. Anyway, I can't remember his name. He's actually really good. A good mix of long-term field experience with understanding new technology. So I suspect this is not the last find that he'll make. The other thing that you have to make about discovering fields is no company out there, nobody, spends money and resources to find all the oil reserves there are in the world. That that would be a waste of their time. They find what they need in the next five or 10 years. And during that five or 10 year period, new technologies come on board, which allows companies to discover even more oil. If you look at the the discoveries that have been made, if you look at the barrels under reserve, which is a legal term, where companies have to say more or less, we know this is this much oil that's recoverable there, that, that number goes up every year because we make more and more and more discoveries. The shell basins that, that everybody talks about, that geology is not unique to the US. You're going to see discoveries made all over the world in the next you know thousand years. So so billion barrels sounds like a lot. It is actually a big discovery, especially where we found it. But in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not that big a deal. Cool. Next question is from uh, Tiffany as a communications officer from somewhere. She writes, I'm from Guyana, South America. We've made 10 discoveries in the last three years and we're ranked among countries with the most discoveries. As a frontier country, there's a lot of excitement, and a lot of skepticism, especially by the citizens. My questions, let's just take it one at a time. What is Guyana's impact, impact, if any, in the overall industry? It's going to be huge. And, you know, I don't even remember what I said five minutes ago. We're talking about the big discoveries. Did I mention Guyana or no? I don't care. I have to go back and listen to my own voice. But they've made some big discoveries there, too. So one of the biggest things is the amount of revenue it's going to generate for, for the, for the com- uh, company, <laughs> generate for the country. It's going to be an enormous influx of cash and of, of foreign investors. And hopefully, 
Ghana's government can manage that well. It can be a, a bit overwhelming. It also opens a door for, unfortunately, things like corruption. So, so you know, hopefully it, it moves in the right direction. But if the government gets everything more or less right, and then the people there, you know, understand what's going on, you're going to see prosperity spread throughout the whole company. You're going to see education, roads, infrastructure, hospitals, all because of this. And the second question is, what are important considerations for frontier countries heading into production? Guyana is scheduled to begin production in the first quarter of 2020. So I mentioned this earlier. In my opinion, probably the biggest risk for frontier countries is corruption. And that's everything from hiring your nephew to be the vice president of what, what, whatever, to you know, taking your friend's bids, even though you know the work's not gonna be good or it's too high. You know, and and that sort of corruption affects governments. I mean, I could tell you country after country after country where the corruption in the oil industry has affected the government and now the government's corrupt. And unfortunately that that's it happens way more than it should. So, you know, things like the fact that you actually have a democracy there, hopefully it will help a whole lot with that. But corruption is probably my biggest concern. My second biggest one is that we talked about money and prosperity, but they haven't went into production yet. They haven't actually worked out all the kinks. And all it would take is a dip in the oil market. You know, let's say we go from $43 to $32 and they're just now starting off. Some companies and people may pull out, which may cause the whole house of cards to fall apart. Now, the other side of that is the prosperity can actually drive inflation, right? So stuff that costs a dollar today may cost a dollar fifty tomorrow. And once again, the government has to manage that inflation. So and, and then you get things like, you know, can you know, we see this here in the US, we see people that win lotteries totally blow it because they've never had to manage that much money before. You're going to see people in that country all of a sudden become wealthy overnight. Can they manage that money? Do they know what to do with it? So there's some economic and some government and some social issues there. But you know, if, if you just do the right thing and as a nation, if you elect the right people to make sure that things are enforced, you'll be fine. Awesome. Next question is from Drew Baker, who's a sales director at Emerson Automation Solutions. Uh, he writes, hey guys, love the podcast. I lead our sales force for Emerson in the Permian and moved to Odessa five months ago without a ton of oil and gas experience. The podcast has been a great way to get up to speed. We are very strong in upstream oil and gas. We provide a ton of measurement devices, control systems, and valves to operators in the Permian. We just opened up a new service center here. Uh, where we are providing uh, training and local inventory for the oil and gas industry in the Permian Basin. I know on a recent show, you guys mentioned wanting to host a show on the road. Would you be interested in doing a show from our new center? We are having a huge grand opening event on March 1st, and we'll be having a cookout in the afternoon. I know you mentioned working on a Permian Perspective podcast. This would be a good way to network with local oil and gas workforce in the Permian. Let me know if there's interest. So I actually spoke with Andrew and Jake. Let me tell you, it makes my heart smile. So there's some places where Emerson and uh, Baker Hughes compete. Uh, Baker Hughes is the sponsor of the Permian Perspective podcast. And so I talked to both of them. So we are going there. We're going to do the grand kickoff with both Baker Hughes and Emerson, not competing, but helping each other to promote the podcast because it's a way to show the local communities that every company that comes in here cares about the community. This was really good. So we're not actually getting up there March 1st. We're still working on the details. We'll probably get there a little bit before, but we're going to have a joint kickoff for the podcast with both Baker and Emerson and Emerson's out there blowing and going. Andrew's a great guy. So yeah, so we're going out there. We don't have the details locked down yet. We will have them locked down by the end of next week, which means the next podcast that we do, we can actually talk about dates and times and everything. But if you could be in that part of Texas around the end of February, if you can come join us, it's going to be an awesome time. I mean, it's just, you know, we're launching a brand new podcast, got some big companies out there. We have great food, great time, get to meet a whole bunch of people. So we'll keep you posted. But Andrew, once again, Thanks for reaching out. 
All right. Next question is from Rob Waters. Uh, he's in asset optimization at Arsenal Resources. He writes, Jake, it was great to meet you guys in Pittsburgh. We had a great group with a lot of thoughtful discussion. Mark, looking forward to running to you again at NAEP in February. Um, yeah. So Colin and I went up to uh, Pittsburgh a few months ago and Rob treated us to uh, tickets at the Penguins game at their suite. So we met Rob and a bunch of other guys from Arsenal Resources and some of the other companies up there in Pittsburgh. So it was a great time. Rob, we had, a, we had a good time. Can't wait to connect with you at NAPE. So he writes, I wanted to get both of your thoughts on the potential for acquisition and development of Ducks in 2019. Ducks totals have been climbing for years, but we're at a point where folks in the industry can identify and analyze trends. The data is there to decipher why wells were not completely in a particular completed in a particular play or by a particular operator and campaign a more complete picture when comparing with existing production. Since the days of get capital, lease, and flip are largely behind us, you see a scenario where Ducks could be the blueprint that outlined new and or step out investment opportunities. Okay. So the, he's absolutely right. Ducks have been climbing. And actually I think ducks are starting to decline and I don't mean the actual numbers that you get reported today. I mean, what I'm hearing from the field, which will be reflected in numbers in about another 30, 30, 45 days. But I, I think there is absolutely new business model to be built there because now, and Jake, y'all, you and Colin talked a little bit about this recently on your startups podcast, which I just found fascinating. Now the technology, especially AI, when it's been trained properly, now it can go in and actually start doing very complex uh, financial calculations, you know, a million times a second. That may not be technically right, but just more than a human could ever do. So, you know, you can see things like different financial models come up. You can see companies figure out different ways to monetize those wells. You can see companies monetize zip, zip fracks uh, with the ducks. You know, you, you can see all kinds of stuff. And so it's going to be kind of a new world there. This duck thing has always existed. And, and by the way, if you don't know what a duck is, drilled, but Drilled, but not completed. Wait, that doesn't rhyme. That doesn't make sense. Drilled. What the hell does duck stand for? Un uncompleted. Drilled, uncompleted. So basically, well's been drilled, but hasn't went to completion. It hasn't uh, went to production yet. I actually think you could see a market, an online market, grow around ducks uh, here in the U.S. and eventually globally, where where it's almost like companies. Uh, investing in, say, the whoever manufactures the memory chip for the next iPhone or whatever. It's like you kind of get ahead of that investment curve by actually getting to the raw parts and pieces. We're not there yet. I've heard of a couple of companies starting to look at doing that, but I don't think the technology is quite there to actually accurately produce the financial models. And it will take that to happen before anybody can actually build a marketplace. So we'll see what happens. This, But I think there's definitely some new business opportunities here, which is funny because drill but not complete wells have been around forever, but just the ability to look at them and to, with a reasonable degree of accuracy, using technology, figure out what their value is th in that moment. All right. Next question is from Alex Stanislavski, who says he's a zip tie engineer at Noble Energy. He writes, uh, zip tie engineer. Does anybody know if that's legit? Because <laughs> it's funny, but it may actually, in our industry, may actually be a real engineering job. <laughs> Happy New Year, Mark and Jake. 2019 is going to be an exciting year in oil and gas, and I'm looking forward to many happy hours that lie ahead. I have four questions, and I hope you don't mind. Recently, I had an argument with a friend about which government agency had a bigger control in oil and gas, the Department of Interior or Department of Energy. We both agreed to disagree, as I think the Department of Interior, with its various bureaus, control all sectors of oil and gas. Okay, so... And then he, he says that, uh, yeah, he thinks the Department of Interior. So there's, there's, it's like two sides of the same coin. Basically, a Department of Interior controls where we can do stuff, and the Department of Energy controls how. So if we don't have the where, we don't need the how. So I guess if you look at it that way, Department of Interior would, would trump the Department of Energy, but the Department of Energy controls the how. And so without the how, we don't really need a where. So it's sort of like the chicken and egg. Um, so I, I actually, I'm going to go with you and say it is Department of Interior, but they're almost equal, just opposite sides of the coin. 
Uh, next question is, how important and reliable is the USGS to oil and gas? Do you have any insight on how they collect data and do business because they issued a press release last month with new estimates of 46.3 billion barrels of oil, 281 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, and 20 billion barrels of NGLs in Texas and New Mexico's Wolf Camp Shale and Bone Spring Formation? All right. So yes, I know how they get the data. They they have access to all of the permitting production data in the U.S. But but be very let me be very clear here. It's not like there's some digital platform that just feeds them information. They're literally in some parts of the country they do have that digital feed, which is awesome. In other parts of the country, they have people that go and read drilling permits and and production whatever, and then send that information in. So the data that comes back to the U.S. Geological Society doesn't all come back at the same time. Right, so then they need to buffer it. So you, you until that gets fixed, and it will probably be fifty years before that gets fixed. But before that gets fixed, every USGS estimate on things is very conservative. So this two hundred eighty-one trillion cubic feet of natural gas, I'd be willing to bet it's at least three, if not three twenty. But but it's because there's a delay in some of the data they get. It would be cool if they ever fixed that. A lot of the public data out there, you look at some of the stuff that Drilling Info does. That's really good too, and the, and they've got an ability to get that data quicker a lot of times than the, than the U.S. government. So but they don't have all the access the government has. So it's, it's kind of, you know, one of them slower is going to be more conservative. One of them is probably more accurate in certain areas than it is in other areas. Okay. So that's, that's that one. What's the next one? Recently attended an IT conference that found that almost 80% of drilling rigs and frack equipment out in the fields today still run on a Windows 7 platform, which is very reliable. Microsoft is going to, guess, going to stop support of Windows 7 in 2020. Do you stick with the mindset if, of it ain't broke, don't fix it? Or do you make the transition to an unreliable Windows 10? I'll tell you right now, just knowing the oil field, they won't switch until they are forced to in 2020. Yeah. And you say Windows 7. Windows 7 is kind of modern. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there still running XP. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff still running on XP out there. And the the biggest risk isn't the fact that Microsoft's going to quit supporting. It's the security risk. And that's my, that's my biggest concern. And I agree with Jake. Until somebody makes them, until they physically have no other choice. And I've seen very large companies pay people to write code to keep legacy systems running. I mean, stuff from the 70s and 80s. They had to actually pay people to go learn the code because the code was so antiquated so they could keep it running. So don't be surprised if somebody works out a deal with Microsoft and they do their own updates for, for XP and Windows 7. But but eventually that will change. The, the, the bad guys, the cybersecurity risk keeps going through the roof every day and, and you got to move to more modern platform just to protect your assets. And last question is, uh, despite the excess amount of natural gas in the U.S. at a much lower price, much of New England and Northeast as of December 2018 still gets its gas supplied from Russia due to factors like Jones Act and absence of pipelines. So will it be illegal for the government to step in and let companies like Kinder Morgan, Enbridge, and Enterprise to use eminent domain to build these pipelines? Ooh, that's actually a damn good question. So eminent domain, basically, it's there, there's laws – in each state, I think there's laws at the federal level too, but basically if it's for the greater good, so let's say me, you listeners out there, our 500,000 listeners out there, let's say all of us live in a neighborhood in a city, and but that city needs a subway. Well, the law of eminent domain means that if we build a subway, it's a betterment for the entire city. And yes, there will be a small group of people that will be misplaced. They'll lose their houses because we've got to build a subway somewhere, but it's it's for the betterment of everybody. So as a civilization, as a society, we tend to agree with that. Now, of course, when they that sort of stuff happens, 
you're you're paid you know fair market value for your property, but you're told you have to leave. You have no choice. It's a little bit different with the pipelines because the the existing northeast part of the country already is getting natural gas. Now, now if you've listened to me any length of time, you know I think it is past ridiculous that they're buying uh, LNG from Russia. I mean, it's just I don't know how much more ludicrous this could get, but. Does that give the government the right to let the pipeline companies, the and Bridges and Enterprise and the Kinder Morgans, use eminent domain to make people sell them a right away? I don't think so. I think if if there was no other way to get natural gas there, yes. But since there's other ways and other ways to get energy there, not just natural gas, but think of electricity, I don't think the government should allow them to use the rights of eminent domain. Although I 100% agree that they don't need to be buying gas rush. They're crazy not to build these pipelines, which would be jobs for everybody. And the gas price that they would be paying would be much less. And you're not funding a, a superpower that doesn't always agree with the U.S. So, you know, that's that's the world we live in. And to make it even stranger, and I can't remember what, it's one of those little bitty states on the East Coast. One of those little states, maybe be Rhode Island, they actually get their LNG from the Caribbean. But Jake, you know where the LNG comes from? The Gulf of Mexico. So this company in the Caribbean goes, comes to the U.S. in the Gulf of Mexico, loads LNG, which is our LNG, goes around Florida, comes up the East Coast, sells it to them, and they think they're happy. That way they don't need pipelines. And it's like, really? You're, it's the same gas you're paying three times more, and it's more harmful for the environment because there's more risk when you start uh, compressing gas to liquid, moving a super taker, then degasifying it and putting it back in the system versus just building a pipeline. But that's the world we live in. Cool. Next question is from Allie Harrigan, who's an operations engineer at Crescent Point Energy. She writes, as a Canadian working in this challenging and turbulent environment, what are our thoughts on the Keystone XL pipeline? And do you think it would ultimately be constructed considering the many roadblocks encountered so far? You know, I, this really just aggravates me. I don't want this to be a show of Mark being aggravated, but what should have been an infrastructure project that made 100% sense for everybody, for Canada, for the US, for all the people turned into a political nightmare and it's just it's just a mess. And and basically we needed needed a way to environmentally responsibly and cheaply get the heavy oil from Canada down to the Gulf Coast. And that's what Keystone is supposed to do. Well, since it's been delayed so much and there's lawsuits going on, and I actually hope TransCanada wins the lawsuit against the U.S. government for this because it was just wrong. Other companies have stepped in, other pipelines companies, and started building carrying capacity to remove that constraint. They're not there yet, but they're so far ahead of Keystone, and they don't have to face some of the political headaches that Keystone has made. I think that that capacity to bring the oil sands down to the Gulf Coast will eventually probably be run by other companies other than TransCanada. And I think that parts of the Keystone Pipeline will probably be sold off to these companies, and the project eventually will be deemed a failure. Now, the transportation will still happen. We still eventually will have a very robust infrastructure system between the oil sands and the Gulf Coast to get that heavy oil down here. But unfortunately, even though TransCanada should be the one owning that, I, I think they're just it's just too late. Cool. Next question is from Kurt Armbruster. Almost like Armbuster. <laughs> I just picture Kurt being like this professional arm wrestler with like one gigantic arm. <laughs> Considering your talent shortage prediction, do you think any companies will be open to the opportunity of starting actively recruiting from the thousands of talented and highly skilled Canadians who are struggling to get back into the Canadian oil patch? Yeah, Kurt. I, I know Kurt, actually. We met him when I went to speak at the Data Driven Production Conference. Good guy. Smart guy. The problem with Canada, and it's, it's here in the US, it's not a Canadian problem, It's but it's politics. And until... Until the people of Canada realize the negative impact of not letting companies build infrastructure like pipelines, it's not going to pick back up to any significant degree. Now, there's been a bunch of, of new technologies, new breakthroughs in oil sands that have dropped 
the production costs, which is actually really awesome. But if you can't move it to market, you can't move it to market. Do I see it picking up? Yes. Do I see it picking up fastly? No. Do I see other companies wanting to come in and hire some of these people? Yes. Now, the thing is, though, there's it's a very niched give and take situation. So if you're a rig hand and you're working in, in the all sands fields and you have the legal right to work in the U.S., you can come to Midland, Texas and get a job right now. But do you want to go to Midland, Texas? You know, do you want to live here and work? That's what you have to, to, to deal with, Kurt, is this, you know, you're not going to be able to stay where you are doing the job that you love in the very near future with another company. You can move around and and get a really good job and maybe even work remotely. Like if I remember right, Kurt, you're a geologist, so it has a lot of remote work possibility there. But but as far as picking up in Canada to any significant degree in the very near future, it's just not going to happen. All right. Next question is from Nate Parker, who's a directional drilling manager at Phoenix Technology Services. Uh, he writes, gents, love the podcast. It's easy to get stuck in my own corner of the industry and lose perspective. The weekly update is fantastic. I love your discussions on the happenings and the movers in the industry and the value provided by responsible operators. We have an internal training presentation coming up to get some of our non-field and non-technical people more familiar with our business. As a part of this, I'd like to share a segment on environmental-specific advancements and steps the industry has made to make oil and gas a leader in pollution and impact reduction. I wonder if you can point me to some sources to highlight some of these steps the industry has taken and progress made. Yeah, so I'd reached out to Nate earlier, answered his email, and I pointed him toward a bunch of stuff. But I, I left this in here because it's a really good thing. A lot of, I mean, a lot of oil and gas companies, the people that run their business don't really know what they do. I can go find an accountant or a project manager or an enterprise architect at Chevron, and they probably know their job extremely well. They don't really know what Chevron does. They don't really know the life cycle, like the the, the finding the oil, getting it off the ground, moving it, turning it into something you sell, selling it. How does all that affect geopolitics? You know, where what is oil's place in the energy mix? A lot of companies have a large part of their their employees that don't know any of this. And so Jake and I are always available to come out, speak to your company, your group in your company, your organization, whatever, and kind of talk through the reality of the entire oil and gas industry. It's a quick, fun presentation, but we can train your employees on what our industry actually does, what you actually do, right? And th that's a good thing for, for everybody because the more people that we have in our industry that understand what we do and the positive impact we make to the people on this planet, the better for all of us. So if you'd like Jake and I to come basically do a training session to help at a high level, your employees understand the industry and, and the, the value that it brings and the environmental responsibility that we all hold dear, let us know. We'll be happy to come do it. All right. So his a uh, question from, I think it's Clavier is his name. Hey, Ray, it's, hey, Mark and Jake. Always great listening to you guys. Uh, Jake, hope you're doing well. Quick question. Okay, I'm going to try to like decipher this. I'm trying to cement plug an already perforated horizontal well. What kind of additives do I need to prevent the slurry from leaking into the formation? So far, I've only found magnesium oxide, uh, which sped up the curing process. I have no clue. <laughs> okay, so first thing, Clavier. <laughs> first thing, Clavier, please tell me you're not really doing this. Like right now, wait for us to answer why stuff's leaking into the formation. <laughs> Second thing, honestly, this is too deep for Jake and I. I barely even know how they even do a cement plug. So, but last time we had this happen, Jake, with the, the difference in pressures versus uh, container size versus LNG versus CNG, one of our, our listeners actually answered the question and I connect him. So if you're out there and, and you know the answer to this, you know, if you, you have a cement plug and already perforate horizontal well, what type of additives does Clavier need to prevent the slurry from leaking into the formation? Let me know and I'll connect you to Clavier and maybe you can help one of our fellow listeners out. 
Cool. Next question is from uh, Dalton Weems, who's a senior electrical controls engineer at Keen Group. I live in Wise County, where Devon owns a majority of the leases. Uh, when the Barnett was booming, there were rigs everywhere, then none for three to 40 years. But over the last few months, Devon has put an estimated three or four rigs in the area and have drilled and fracked multiple wells on at least 10 pads, maybe even more. They're all south of Decatur. Any idea what slash why Devon is drilling in the Barnett again? The natural gas price hasn't changed much. And if it was a, a user lose lease, I would not see drilling five plus wells per pad. Wondering what they know that the rest of us don't. All right. So even though Devin doesn't call Jake and I and tell us their strategic plans, they should. So Devin, if you're listening, next time y'all have a strategy meeting about what you're doing in the Barnett, let Jake and I come and supervise y'all. But Dalton, I, you're, you're on to it. So so this is what I think. This is an area. So first thing I think is natural gas is headed up. I think Devin has, has used their intelligence and experience to figure out when that price point's going to hit to the point where they can actually make money with gas in the in the Barnett. And so then they're drilling and completing before that. So they're trying to be first to market, but not too soon when the price is too low. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on here. Cool. Last question is from Joe Batir. We know Joe. What's up, Joe? Uh, he's a research uh, geologist at SMU. Uh, he writes, hey guys, thanks for the insightful information. You were getting out there and covering every facet of the industry. It helps technical guys like me understand what is going on above ground. Recently, I saw a hedge fund is bidding to purchase QEP for around $2 billion. What is going on here? I don't hear of any hedge funds coming in to purchase petroleum companies often. Is this a new trend, a one-off, or am I just out of the loop? Thanks for sharing. You know, Jake, I don't see this either, but they did make, a, I think, $2.7 billion bid on that. And it's, it really is interesting. I, and I don't know that investment world, that the hedge fund world like you do. But to me, that t- it makes me think that this hedge fund's looking at a slightly different business model, almost doing like an A-B test. You know, you, have to, you probably have more comment on this than I do. It's, it's kind of uncommon to come in and buy an entire company as a hedge fund. I can't think of any recent examples. Maybe the listeners have some examples. Of the, if you guys want to write in and let me know. I haven't seen any. We do know that large hedge funds take decent positions in publicly traded oil and gas companies. I know just off the top of my head, just seen the news lately, EQT, one of the largest shareholders is a hedge fund out of New York. The only reason I know that is because of the whole what's going on with the Rice Brothers. I guess they paired up with this hedge fund and are looking to kind of take EQT head on and put in Toby Rice as a CEO of EQT to hopefully bring the stock price back up to what everybody believes it should be. So yeah, I think this is kind of more of a one-off recently. I could be 100% wrong. So if anybody else has any insight on that, just let me know. Yeah. And and QEP, why don't you give me a shout and let me know what's going on out there? Because this is kind of different out of y'all's wheelhouse. So normally this is the point where we give away the Red Wing bag. I told y'all, all all of y'all, you know who I'm talking to, that last month was your last chance to enter to get one. So if you missed out, it was your own fault because I told you. Uh, We're going to have a really cool giveaway uh, from IBM. Don't want to tell you what that is yet, but it's super cool. Uh, We should probably have that site up and ready to go in two weeks. So just stay tuned for that. Rig count, what are we doing today, Jake? We're at 1093. 1093, good number. And then events on deck, we got a couple we want to mention because they're close to our hearts. We have the Women in Energy Conference event. That's Friday, January 18th, so it's not that far away. So put on by our fine folks at SPE. Hey, before we get further into events, I am lucky enough to have Eric with SPE here talking about an event you have coming up right around the corner. Eric, thanks for being on the show. And what's going on with SPE here in Houston? Mark, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. We're actually hosting February 21st, our first annual Top Golf Tournament. 
It's open to all oil and gas professionals. We're currently uh, looking for people to register teams, register as individuals, register just for the networking. If you don't want to play, you can register as a as just a spectator and, and just also, drink. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just drink. Well, so, so Eric, this is like the beginning of the year, so not just a great time to do some team building with your team. But if you're a company out there looking for exposure, it's also a great time for them to sponsor something and the money goes to a good cause, does it? Yep. All of our proceeds go to STEM scholarships, uh, which help students that are, are going to college for any engineering discipline. So all for a good cause. Yeah. So if you like to play golf or if you like to just drive the ball or if you just like to drink or if you just like to have a network, you need to check this out. SP always does great events. We fully support them. We're going to put a link in the show notes. So if you're looking to sponsor an event and get your company's message in front of a whole bunch of oil and gas people, this is a great thing to do. If you're looking to bring your team and network, this is a great thing to do. And if you just want to go hang out with a bunch of cool oil and gas people, go do it. So Eric, we put a link in the show notes. People go check it out. Go sign up. Um, and when you go, go find Eric. He's a great guy to know. Eric, man, thanks for coming on. Thanks for actually doing this live with me because you did a much better job explaining it than I would have done. Yeah. And just a, a reminder, depending on when this podcast goes out, we actually have a special right now. It's a discounted uh, rate through the end of the month. So if you go and sign up now, you'll save a little bit of money in the process. That's awesome. Thanks for doing that, Eric. So folks, go do it. Then we have our Oil and Gas Global Network Super Happy Hour here in Houston, Tuesday, January 29th. And then we have the SPE Intercorporate Top Golf Tournament Networking Team Building Event, February 21st. We're, we're actually going to bring a podcast. I think we're going to bring HSE podcast that event. That's also by our friends at SPE. If you want to learn about this and more, sign up for my monthly newsletter. We put all the oil and gas events in your inbox once a month, plus a lot of times some freebies that nobody knows is going on. And it's free and we don't spam you. All these links are in the show notes. If you're listening to this on your mobile, just swipe up or left and you can click on these links and, and check all this stuff out. And then we talked earlier about coming and help educate your people, but Jake and I also can bring the podcast or actually come speak to your your company event, your sales and marketing kickoff, uh, any of that sort of stuff. So if you'd like us to come out there, and especially if you're doing a, a sales kickoff, you know, there's always some type of entertainment there. Why don't you bring entertainment that's only gas focused, like me and Jake? Your people will love it. Promise you. We've done it enough times that people just rave about it. But if you want us to do any of that stuff, just reach out to either one of us and we will help you get that figured out. Uh, this, of course, the first Friday Q&A. Please go to the website, oilandgasthisweek.com. Click on ask a question. Leave us a question. Remember, the goal is not to stump me or Jake. Oh, and if you're at the website, go ahead and give us your email address. We promise not to spam you. And you've heard me announce this. We have put together the Oil and Gas Global Network Street Team. So we have a bunch of awesome, bright volunteers from all over the world is going to help us with our social media. We're putting that together now. We hope to kick that off in February. But you will start seeing a really good, unique content on all our social platforms, include LinkedIn. And if you want to join the LinkedIn group, just go in, type in OGGN, pop up, join it. It is the companion to this show and all of the other podcasts. Whew, this is a long show, huh, Jake? Yeah. <laughs> you ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right, folks. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.